Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And last time we read about the defeat of Israel. And so there was an indecisive battle that occurred in four, when it, in chapter 4 verse 2 where the Philistines uh, came and, and, and fought against Israel. And then the unwise wisdom of the people was to take the ark of God and to bring it into the battle, thinking that that would give them success, much like it gave Joshua success. And we use that as an example where although those people had faith, Israel had faith that they were going to succeed because the ark was with them, their faith was not based on God's word. And how we as believers can sometimes get confused and have great faith, but we don't see God come through because we weren't functioning according to His will. So, faith without content and obedience doesn't end up succeeding. But as we read on down, let's, let's just pick it up then in verse 5. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So you see that the ark was taken down into the battle. When the Philistines heard the ark was coming, they became very scared. Because they realized that this was, this ark represented a God who they had heard about. 300 years prior to this, the Israelites came in, into the land. And they had heard, the Philistines heard actually what happened to Pharaoh 300 years earlier. And still remembered it. We base very little as Western Christians on oral tradition. For us, you know, it's the Word of God. If you look at Judaism, Judaism based a lot on the written word, but also a lot on oral tradition. There is also the oral word, which for them is far more precise than we, we give the oral word credit. We say, oh, it's sort of like you know, that telephone game where you whisper in one person's ear and once it gets down to the end of the chain, it's a totally different story. That is so false when it comes to oral tradition. And particularly in things of the Bible. So, for example, scholars have, have mapped this thing out. If you say, oh, well, the Bible was written, you know, hundreds of years after the event, and the oral, the oral message would have faded away. No, there are, there are accounts of cities throughout the Old and the New Testament. Names of little cities that were all written and recorded long after the Bible Long after the event, these things were written, but people have gone back and found those cities with those precise names. You could never have done this sort of thing, so the detail is very sure. 
Nonetheless, they had heard about this. So 300 years later, this wasn't the Israelites who heard about this. The Philistines heard about what happened to Pharaoh. And 300 years later, their tradition is so precise that it's causing them to worry. Now they put it in polytheistic terms, saying in verse 8, Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So they put it in polytheistic terms because that's the way they understood God as gods. Nevertheless, the precision of there was a dealing of plagues upon Pharaoh. And they may have known much more than, you know, this one sentence that they cried out with. And so then, then it, the, the ark is brought in and the Philistines say, well, let's just fight. We're going to fight here. And now if we pick it up in verse 10. So the Philistines sought, fought with Israel. So, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry... He said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? Then a man came hurriedly and told Eli. The man came and, and, and hurriedly told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old. And, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. Okay, so this is a decisive battle. Previously only 4,000 died. Now a decisive battle where, where there were 30,000 of Israel that died in that battle. The ark of God was taken and Eli and Phinehas, the sons of, of, of Eli, were killed. Now this was prophesied both by Samuel when he was a boy and earlier on than that in chapter 2, it was prophesied to Eli that your two sons will die in the same day. And so it says that a man of Benjamin ran back and, and, and with his clothes torn from the battle and this is 20 miles, mostly uphill, that he's running to get back to Shiloh. He came and, is, and Eli says his heart was trembling not for his sons, because he knew what the prophecy was. It was for the ark of the Lord. Because never in the prophecy had it mentioned anything about the ark of the Lord. And he was trembling because they had taken the ark probably against his will. They had taken the ark into the battle and he was very worried for that. And it says, uh, uh, Eli was 98 years old and he was blind. He couldn't see. Earlier back in, in, uh, uh, 
in chapter 2 or 3, it says that his eyes were growing dim, but at this point he was blind. And it says that the man came and he says, uh, your two sons have been killed. Israel has fled. There's been a great slaughter. And none of that phases him very much. But it says, then he says, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the back, off the seat backward beside the gate. And his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Well, we know he was old because he was 98. It even said back in uh, chapter 2 during the prophecy that you and your sons have made your, your, yourselves fat on the offerings that should have gone to the Lord. So we knew from that chapter that he was heavy. Here it underscores again he was heavy. So he falls back, breaks his neck and dies. It says that he falls back when he finds that the ark is taken. So he cares so much about that ark. He was a faithful priest in that regard. And, and uh, his biggest problem was not that he was taking others' sacrifices that they shouldn't have been taking, but his sons were doing it, and he did not rebuke them in time. But when he understands that the ark is taken, his life fades away. Now in verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law... Phineas' wife was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory of God has departed from the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. So she says, The glory has departed from Israel. And actually, the glory did not depart from Israel. The Shekinah glory doesn't doesn't actually depart until much later, until. Uh, the book of Ezekiel prophesies this in the second dispersion. But we'll reflect on that. But it's interesting. We say the Philistines defeated Israel. No, it was God who gave Israel over to the Philistines. If you look, for example, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah makes reference to this event as the temple now is about to be destroyed. He makes reference to this event and in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, it says, but go, now to my place, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel, and how, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking to you, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust, and to the place which I have gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. So, God is the one who destroyed Shiloh. God is the one who allowed the Philistines to come in now and destroy Shiloh. God says, I'm the one who did it. 
he used the Philistines as a tool, but God is the one, because after this battle, now the Philistines come in and destroy Shiloh. And that's also mentioned in Psalm 78, verses 59, and Psalm and onward in Jeremiah 26, verses 6 and 9. Again, that God was the one that destroyed Shiloh. So this is where the tabernacle was. God destroyed it because of the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas, and because the priests didn't stop this wickedness. But what I want to reflect on here, so, so this is the context of it, and, and also around this context, so that you understand, because of this battle, the Philistines had now cut Israel in half. There was Judea on the south, Galilee in the north, they had split the thing in half. The Philistines had city-states, there were five or six city-states among the Philistines. They now effectively cut in half the nation of Israel. And this gave them control of the trade routes between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And this is what caused them now to start getting great wealth. Previously, Israel had had this. It will be Saul and Jonathan that will reestablish this Israel land mass as one. They will kick out the Philistines eventually from this place. Uh, and the, the Philistines are now exerting power probably because, because Samson has died. So, there's a distinction, though, between different people. This woman said, the glory of God has departed. But the glory of God never departed from Samuel. Samuel was quite able to continue. If you look, for example, in the destruction of the temple, in, in about 650 B.C., here the temple was destroyed Daniel was taken into captivity in Babylon with his three, three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Here the temple was destroyed. The ark of God was taken. There was no more sacrifice. There was no more temple worship. But Daniel spiritually thrived, as did his three friends. He would go into his house and he would pray and God would speak to him. Daniel was thriving even though the glory had departed. Daniel was thriving. In the personal life of Daniel, the glory was still there. God makes a distinction between people. You can have a family, two brothers, grow up in the same family under the same teaching. One brother can spiritually and socially and emotionally thrive and the other brother, spiritually, socially, and emotionally, be starved. Same teaching. It is, what will we do with that which has been given to us? But God makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between people who follow God and His ways and people who don't. He always has and He always will. Look in, 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 uh, in Exodus chapter 11. God makes this very clear, this distinction between Israel and Egypt. Exodus chapter 11. Verse 6. Exodus eleven six. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel... A dog will not even bark, whether against a man or a beast. 
that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So Israel, so Egypt is about to undergo a terrific cry because all of their firstborn are going to be killed in a single night. But against Israel, not even a dog is going to bark. God makes a distinction between people. You want to be on the right side of that distinction. Turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And Jesus speaks of this in the context of the believer. And He gives us the secret on how to stay in the proper place. In John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. So Jesus says that He is the vine, His Father is the vine dresser. He says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. His Father takes it away so that it doesn't choke the life, life out of the vine. He says, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken. We are not talking about a loss of salvation to the believer. We are talking about a loss of fruitfulness and a loss of joy in the life of the believer. You're already clean. So he's establishing up front. Because of his word, we are already clean if we are found in him. But then he says, abide in me and I in you. You can't bear fruit without abiding in me. You can't bear fruit without abiding in me. Remember, Jesus doesn't force us to do what is right, but he permits us to do wrongly rather than forcing us to do what is right, because that's what love is. Love would be impossible without that. He says in verse 5, apart from me, you can't do anything apart from me. As a believer... You say, well, look at all these people in the world. They don't even know Jesus and they're doing this and that. As a believer, you can't do anything apart from Him. Anything that will bear fruit for His kingdom, you cannot do apart from Him. He is speaking to the believer here. In verse 6 it says, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. He's not talking about a, a hell fire. He's talking about a fire that just destroys a life. And people say, well, why does God do that? Let me put it this way. 
God has a place for us. Call it a garden. Call it a house. Call it a haven. If we dwell in there, we do well. We dwell protected. We bear fruit. He says, if you step outside this garden, if you step outside this haven, it will be difficult for you. Things will happen to you. And the further you get from this haven, the harder it's going to be. And every time you take a step further from this haven, you will want to take more steps away from it. And then we step very far away from this haven, from this garden, and we get beat up. God, why are you allowing me to get beat up? That is so cruel of you. Come on. I told you, if you step outside of this garden, of this haven, things will not go well for you. Is it mean of God to then allow us to step out of the haven on our own and then we find ourselves getting beaten up by the world? You see what I mean? God is not the one who initiates this. We are the one who initiate, who initiates the not abiding. He is there in this haven. When we stray from this, we get torn apart by the world. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, the whatever, ask whatever you wish and it will be done is given as a promise to those that abide. But those that abide really in the presence of Jesus, are very careful about what they ask for. Because when we abide in Him, we are careful about what we ask for. Before the giving comes asking. But before the asking comes abiding. He says, if you abide in Me and My words abide in you. Does Jesus' word abide in us? Does His word abide in me? So before He hears me in my prayer to give it to me, have I heard Him? Hearing Him comes before His hearing me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if his word abides in me, you know, I can look at my wife's face and know what she's thinking. I can. I can know what she's thinking. She doesn't have to have a big smile on her face or a big frown on her face for me to know what she's thinking. Just from the corner of her eyes, just a very slight movement. I can tell whether she approves or disapproves, whether she's unhappy, whether she's angry, whether she's about to lose her temper. I mean, many children can do this with their mothers. You, know, you push your mother just to the point, and then you know when she's going to go. And you just back off. You know that threshold. You can learn it with your spouse as well. I came home last night, and I was working in the lab, and I got home later than I should have, and dinner was already served, and... Dinner was waiting for me on the table, but I wanted dinner, but I didn't want to sit alone at dinner. I wanted my wife with me. So 
I went upstairs and I just started acting really friendly. Like I didn't know what was wrong. <laughs> and she was in the bathroom taking her makeup off and stuff. And I came up and gave her a kiss, gave her a hug. I said, come on down and join me for dinner. She says, everything's down on the table. You're late. I said, I know, but I'm here now. I got stuck in the lab. And I was just trying to act like I didn't really, you know, wasn't trying to make a big deal about it. And then she says, no, you came late. I was waiting for you. I'm upstairs now. I'm not going back down. Everything's down there on the table. I said, but I want you. And then I said, you know, I came up here nice. I kissed you. I hugged you. And you received the kiss and the hug. You, since you received it, it, since you received it, you owe me. You owe me now to come down. If you had not received it, that was one thing. And, you know, because I could just see in her, just the body language, that she wasn't happy with me. So I right away tried to, you know, finagle this thing to get, to get past it. And, you know, she eventually came down and, you know, was with me for a little while and then, and then went up. But the reason I could do this, because I knew she wasn't that mad. I knew she was a little upset. She wasn't really that mad. So I knew that I could, I could probably meld this thing back together. I understand her. Because we've been married for 28 years. I understand her just by the way she looks, by the way she acts, by the way she responds. I mean, that I could come up there and give her a hug and a kiss, and she receives the hug and the kiss. I knew she couldn't be that mad. You know, if she was really mad, I would have seen it in her face as soon as I walked up there and just, you know, just gone by the corner of the edge of the wall and just slunk right out of there. And I... When you spend time with somebody, you don't even need to hear a word. Just the expression on their face is enough. When you abide with Jesus, you just think about Him as to what He would think about this, what He would do, how He would respond. And when you take portions of Scripture and you commit them to memory, They just come up like a flood to instruct you on what to do. And so that when you abide in His presence, you really get to know Him. You really get to know this man. You know the way He thinks. You know what to do, what's right. You know what to ask for, what's right to ask for, what's wrong to ask for. And that's why He gives this promise only to those who abide. He says, if you abide in Me and My Word, My words abide in you, then, only then, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Without the abiding, doesn't get the promise. Without His Word, Abiding, me abiding in Him and His words abiding in me, I don't have that promise. Jesus is quite explicit here. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. The intent of this is that we bear fruit in our lives, that we are the brother that does well in life. This is his intent. So many students come and go in this class. 
Hundreds upon hundreds and upon hundreds of students have come and gone. I don't keep track of them all. I can't keep track of them all. I, I hardly even know your names without the name tags. But I know that if they take this word and get it into their lives, they will be okay. They will be okay. I need not be concerned if they take this word and get it into their hearts. It is this word. They will bear fruit. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. What an amazing thing. He says, now I want you to abide in my love. He's not asking us to abide in hell. He's not asking us to abide in a fire. He's not asking us to abide in a slum. He's saying, abide in my love. Well, well, come on now. You know, you're asking a bit much of me. I mean, he's asking us to abide in his love. I want you to live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I mean, how much clearer could it be? You know, I can understand if someone says abide in my love, that's kind of a nebulous thing. You know, what does that really mean? You know, put some flesh on that for me. You know, get, construct something for me. What do you really mean abiding in your... Keep my commandments. Oh, oh, I am to keep his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Why should I obey your commandments and abide in your love? Because then you'll have joy. I mean, what better can you guarantee somebody than a joyous life? That I hope you have a joyous life. That's all I can do. Is hope and pray that you have a joyous life. But He, the Son of God, can guarantee you a joyous life. Who here wants to experience the pain of divorce? Who here wants to have kids that just run them ragged? Who here wants to have to go from job to job because they can't hold a job because every employer hates them? Nobody. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants stability, but the joy in the heart. So that even if the economy is doing flip-flops, there's a joy, an abiding joy. Jesus said, if you do this, these things I've spoken to you, so if you do this, I've told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. He wants His joy in us, and our joy to be made full. I mean, what more could a person want? To have the joy of God in their hearts. To have the joy of God in their lives. To be able to enjoy their careers. You know why I, I come home from the lab late? I went into my office at 8 yesterday morning. So yesterday was Saturday. I worked in the office till about 11.30. Then I went into the lab. And it was just so much fun. I couldn't get out of there till 7 o'clock. I mean, it just, who wants to leave? 
Wouldn't you love to have a job like that? You just, I mean, you just love this stuff. I don't have to punch a clock. Not at all. I mean, if they paid me by the hour, I'd be charging them like 24 hours a day because I'm always thinking about my chemistry. Right? So, so if I'm paid by the hour, I should be, I'm a scientist, so I should get paid to think. So I'm driving in the car. I'm thinking about chemistry. So they, they need to pay me for that. You know, I can even be preaching a message and 20% of my CPU is doing chemistry. So they need to pay me for that time. I love it. I never knew I would love chemistry so much. I, I didn't. You know, it was, it was you know, something I had to get through. But God has given me this joy. I want you to experience this joy in your work. So that when you're, you know, I don't know if you sit at drafting tables anymore. You know, sitting with your CAD-CAM programs and designing. That you really love this stuff. That you look at it and you go, yes. You know, this has been solved. You know, we figured this thing out. It is so much fun. I want you to experience this joy. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you. What does that mean, Lord? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. That's what it means. And you will have joy in your life. You will want to stay within this haven, this framework. And as soon as you start stepping out, you'll get beaten up. Things will start to happen. Go ahead, step outside this protective framework. Go ahead, partake in the things that the world says are good. That the world says it's really not that bad, it's a victimless crime, blah, blah, blah. Go ahead, step into that and see how it destroys your life. And then don't blame God. You stepped outside the parameters of His commandments. He has a joy for you. I want you to experience that joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so good. Thank you, Lord, that when some were saying the glory had departed, there were others that were thriving. Father, thank you for your word, which tells us to keep your commandments, and so we will abide in you and have joy. Lord, thank you for making it so clear. Obeying your commandments causes us to abide in you, and we have joy. Thank you for the promise that if there's the abiding and your word abiding in us, you hear us and you answer. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. Thank you, Father. May we get to know you better, to learn the very expressions that you have, to learn what it is, Lord, to know you. Father, thank you for your mercies. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.